Your temple has been destroyed. Your people are living in sin. And listen to what the heathen nations around are saying about us. They are mocking the God of Israel. And this man's heart is broken. And so he's praying for the removal of guilt. But he also prays for the restoration of glory. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, a chapter which some have described as the mountain peak of prophecy. Next week, we'll look at the 70 weeks of prophecy and its meaning in relations to the end time events. Yesterday, we looked at the importance of fasting, and today, Pastor Brogy notes that when we pray, God is interested in the humility of our prayers. When you pray, God's not interested just in the rhetoric of your prayer, how spiritual it may sound. He's not interested in how long it may be. This Wednesday night is not the time to come up and catch on your prayer life. God is interested in the humility that is in your prayer and my prayer. And one of many ways in which that humility is expressed is in prayer and in fasting. But what's kind of neat back here in Daniel 9 is God prophesied something that was going to happen. And yet Daniel is praying about this thing that is going to happen. And it's very interesting because many times in the Bible, God commands his people to pray for something that he promises he's going to do. For example, the Bible predicts that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And yet Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is coming a day when God's will in heaven will literally actually be done upon the earth in a wholesale way when Messiah comes to rule and reign and fulfill those Old Testament promises. Uh, God tells us, that um, someday when the Prince of Peace comes back, there'll be real peace in Jerusalem. And yet he tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us someday Jesus will literally, physically, actually come back to judge the living and the dead. In fact, John closes the revelation with Jesus' words, yes, I am coming quickly, and he immediately follows it with a prayer, even so come, Lord Jesus. It's interesting, even though God says he's going to do something, he often does that something in response to the prayers of his people. And of course, that's what God predicts in the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to these words again, a misquoted verse often. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, speaking of Israel, though it has legitimate application for us today. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope, but understand the context of the promise. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place where I've sent you into exile. God said the exile is going to last for 70 years, but I'm going to bring you back, but I'm not going to bring you back until you search for me with all your heart. Why is Daniel praying? Because he looks around and he doesn't see that. And it breaks his heart. And the fact that that was not the tenor in everyone's heart is that when they finally get to leave, a lot of them don't want to leave. 
because life in Babylon is too comfortable. But enough of them repent and get their hearts right that God then, in response to prayer, literally fulfills that promise. All right, now, there's the occasion for his prayer. There's the humility in his prayer. Now let's think about the confession through his prayer. The confession through his prayer. In verses 4 and 5, we are reminded that he confessed all kinds of sin. Um, What follows really is one of the great model confessional prayers in all of the Bible. This prayer talks a lot about God's character, about God's covenant, God's commandment. But amongst that truth, there is an earnest, broken confession by this man. Look at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, alas, and I love the New American Standard, it retained the vocative. A lot of the new translations just say, Lord. The NAS says, oh, Lord. Why? Because in Hebrew, there's a depth of feeling here. Oh, Lord. When you see the vocative, you're seeing something that's coming out of the depths of a man's heart. Oh, Lord, the great and awesome God. By the way, not many people see God as great and awesome, do they? They don't think of God the way he is described in the Bible. They've made a God in their own image. Oh, God's a God of love. He's not going to deal with us justly or in wrath. But Daniel knows his God because he knows his Bible. I pray to the Lord, my God, and confess, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. At least three dimensions to his confession. I have them underlined. First, they committed iniquity. The word iniquity is a Hebrew word often translated perversity. It's not just sin. It's a word that literally means to be bent, to be crooked. You know, some people sin, but some people sin by, by perversion. There is some activity where we say, that's not just bad. That's sick. That's perverted. That was Daniel's day. We have sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've acted wickedly. This Hebrew word just describes kind of a general disobedience towards God. And by the way, that's what God says the church will be like in the last days. Men's hearts will grow cold, lawlessness will be increased. Don't let that happen to you. Some of you tune me out 10 minutes into the sermon, 30 years being a pastor, I can read people after a while. I can, I mean, you can't hide it, friends. You you can't hide from God, much less a pastor who just works with people. You wrote me off. Why? Because your heart is so indifferent towards God, so lackadaisical, so lukewarm, so apathetic. Don't let that happen to you. The scripture says that will characterize the church at the end of time. Second, we've acted wickedly. Third, we have acted rebelliously. We have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly and rebelled. And the word rebelled here in Hebrew is used in two ways, to rebel against a king, a secular authority, or to rebel against God. Obviously, here, the latter. How? By turning aside from your commandments and your ordinances. Sins of commission, sins of omission. There was a revolt amongst the people. They were shaking their fists by the way they lived and the face of God. And they said, we don't care. We've turned aside from your commandments and your ordinances. And so God saw their persistent disobedience. That's why he sent prophet after prophet to woo them back, but they didn't listen, and they refused to listen. And now those 70 years are nearly up, and they still haven't gotten the message. So he confesses all kinds of sins. Secondly, he also pleads for all kinds of people, all kinds of people. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, 
who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. These people had the benefits of prophets who warned them to repent, but they didn't listen. The kings did not listen. The princes did not listen. Our fathers did not listen, and we have not listened, the people of the land. And so what's his conclusion? Verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day to the men of Judah. That is, all the Jews from Judah, the southern kingdom, we don't know righteousness like we should know it, like you are, God. Then he adds the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, that's the northern kingdom, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. So he's praying for the rest of the Jewish people, not just the Jewish people in Babylon, but those who are still left in Jerusalem and those who are scattered throughout the nations of the world through the Assyrian deportation. Open shame, verse 8, belongs to us. O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. What is he saying? He says, no one can be excused, not the kings, not the princes, not the fathers, not the people in Jerusalem, not the people scattered in all the countries, not us here in Babylon. We're all guilty. To you, the Lord our God, belongs compassion and forgiveness for we, circle that, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we, circle that, obeyed the voice of the Lord our God in order uh, to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants the prophets. So in verse 7, he says, righteousness belongs to you. Shame to us. Here in verse 9, to the Lord God belongs compassion and forgiveness. What is he saying? He's saying the problem is not God. People want to blame God. The problem is us. As Pogo said in his comic strip in the 1950s, we have found the enemy and it is us. 28 times in the midst of uh, between verses 4 and 15, I have everyone circled in my Bible. He uses the first person pronoun. Verse 5, we have sinned. Verse 6, we have not listened. Verse 8, we have sinned. Verse 9, we have rebelled. Verse 10, nor have we obeyed the voice of God. Verse 11, we have sinned. Verse 14, we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15, we have been wicked. You say, why is that significant? Well, number one, Daniel lived above his culture. Daniel was a man who lived an exemplary life, and yet he identifies with his people, that, that he lived above his culture. Remember Daniel 6 and verse 4, the commissioners, the satraps, they all try to get something against him, but they can't find any ground of accusation or evidence of corruption or negligence could ever be found in him. Now, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Daniel was a sinner like us. But he is in a special league of people in the Bible. He's put with Joseph and Joshua and Nehemiah, of whom not a single sin is ever recorded. Why? Because God wants to emphasize and highlight with this man's life and those other men that in the midst of a depraved culture, you don't have to live like the culture. And yet, he identifies himself with the people. We have sinned and committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled. That's real humility. He recognizes that there's corporate failure in the nation. By the way, Nehemiah does the same thing. Oh God, we have sinned against you. Ezra the priest does the same thing. Oh God, we have sinned. It's a model God gave us in Scripture and it still applies today. Why? Because we are members one of another. 
If you're here today and you're living in sin as a believer, you don't sin in isolation. You're hurting us. You're hurting this church. You're hurting its testimony. You're not only hurting yourself, you're hurting the testimony of the body of Christ, not only locally, but across the world. Because they say, there goes another one of those Christians. You may not be sinning by sins of commission. Maybe there are sins of omission. You can't remember the last time you even cared for the soul of a lost person. Can't remember the last time you tried to invite someone to church. Tried to take some through the plan of salvation. Why? Because your heart's so cold. Sad. And so here's Daniel, and his heart is sad. And he prays, God, we have done this. And we certainly, as members of the body of Christ, members of each other, should pray the same thing. Third, he acknowledged all kinds of consequences. He acknowledged all kinds of consequences. Daniel continues his prayer. He elaborates on why these people are in captivity. Verse 11, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath, which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. We have sinned against him. Verse 12, thus he has confirmed his words, which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like that which was done to Jerusalem. Put out in the margin next to verses 11 and 12, Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68. Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68. God said, if you will not obey me, the Lord your God, to observe and do all my commandments and my statutes, then I charge you all these curses will come upon you. And you read about curse after curse after curse. There are expressions of God's love and discipline on his people. And among them, put down Deuteronomy 28, 49, or just listen to 49 and 50. Um, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth. As the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who shall have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. That's what God did through the Assyrians. That's what God did through the Babylonians. You disobey me. I will use these pagan kings as instruments of my discipline. And he did it. And so what is this prophet saying? Daniel is saying, we're forewarned by the law of Moses. As it is written in the law of Moses, this calamity has come upon us. By the way, Daniel believed in Mosaic authorship. He believed Moses wrote the Torah, unlike the liberal theologians of our day. Put next to verse 13, Deuteronomy 30. I'll let you go home and read that chapter, but let me read just a couple of verses. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and all your soul, according to all that I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. So Daniel adds here in verse 13, yet, we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God from turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Do you as a saved person ever have a time of confession before God? 
Will you name your sins? I'm not talking about keeping your salvation. That's a secure thing if you've really been saved. We're not talking about your union, but we're talking about your communion. We're not talking about your relationship, but your fellowship with God, your intimacy with God. Do you ever get low before God and just name your sins one by one? If it's been a long time, my friend, it just tells you your heart is a million miles away and you are becoming a part of the final apathetic generation that Jesus spoke of. Let me conclude with the petition of his prayer. Daniel begins in verse 15 by reminding God that he had once delivered his people out of Egypt. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. Why does he refer to the Exodus? Because in every Jew's mind, even to this day, the Exodus signals the great deliverance of God Almighty by those ten magnificent plagues in which He delivers them. We have sinned. We have been wicked, He quickly adds. Now in verse 16, He has a request. He prays for the removal of guilt. Oh Lord, there's evocative again, expressing the depth that's found in the Hebrew language. Oh Lord! in accordance with all your righteous acts. Let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our Father, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all the people around us. He speaks there of Jerusalem where God's holy mountain is, Mount Moriah, there in the Temple Mount where the temple of God, where the Shekinah glory would literally actually come into that place. And he's saying, God, your reputation is harmed. Your temple has been destroyed. Your people are living in sin. And listen to what the heathen nations around are saying about us. They are mocking the God of Israel. And this man's heart is broken. And so he's praying for the removal of guilt. But he also prays for the restoration of glory. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Underline those words in verse 17, for your sake. What is he saying? God, this is not for me. God, my heart beats after your reputation, after your, rep after your testimony. God, do this for your own sake. Do you know what many of us are praying for? For our needs, for our wants, as they relate to us and not to God. We're praying for our country's sake. We're praying for our family's sake. We're praying for our own sake. But that's not what will get it done. We need to pray for God's sake, for His greatness, for His glory. We need to pray, God, help me with my finances that I might demonstrate to a lost world that you are a God who provides. God, help me with my marriage, that it might honor Christ because it is to picture his love for his people. God, help me with my children, not just so I won't be embarrassed, but that you might demonstrate that we can raise children for the cause of Jesus Christ. Oh my God, verse 18, not in vain. And I hear God's people in this church sometimes say, oh my God. Don't do that in vain. In his prayer, oh my God, 
incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. God, that city is your city. Your name is on that. And I'm jealous for your honor and for your reputation, for your name. And he adds, for we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. Oh, my God, do not delay because your city and your people, uh, because your city and your people call called by your name. This man does not pray a man-centered prayer, but a God-centered prayer. He is praying for the glory of God. When we say at the end of a prayer, for your name's sake, we are saying for the glory and reputation of God is expressed in Jesus Christ. And listen, when you get concerned about the glory of God, you will move the hand of God. That's when the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now let me leave you with two applications. One as it relates to those of us who know Christ and the other to those who still need to. First, I want to ask the church here to set your face with me in prayer. To set your face with me in prayer. I'd like you to do that more in your homes. Some of you come every week around quarter of 11 and you miss the opportunity to pray in the ABFs. You should come to one of those because there's a time of corporate prayer. Even if you don't say anything verbally, you can grip your hearts with the hearts of God's people. Some of you are able to come on Wednesday nights, but you have your favorite television show. And you should be here if you can be here because there is prayer that is done individually, but there's prayer as expressed in the model prayer, our Father who in heaven. That's corporate prayer, God's people praying together. And so we need to seek the living God. We need to ask for his help. We need to ask God to work. Do you see what is going on in our country? There's not just humanism. There's militant humanism. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to feel what is happening? We have apostate churches in our own community that either are afraid to talk about gay marriage or have now come out publicly and endorsed it. In a little town like this, do you see the moral scene in our nation? The drug epidemic that just seems to be growing. The sexual immorality by heterosexuals both before and after marriage. 1.5 million babies slaughtered. And we have some presidential candidate this week before Planned Parenthood pleading that that woman's right be protected when God calls it an evil beyond evil. Do you realize what is happening? You say, is there anything we can do? Yes, there is. The people of God who know God can seek God in prayer. And God does business with those who mean business. Second, you can only approach God in the merits of Christ's death and resurrection. You can only approach Him in the merits 
of Jesus' work. We'll come to verse 21 next time, but there's a small detail often overlooked because Daniel's answer to prayer comes in the time of the evening offering. That's not by accident because there are no coincidences in the Bible. God is affirming that the basis for our prayer is the blood of the Messiah, the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices down at the evening offering were a foreshadow of what the Lord Jesus was going to do. And when did Jesus die on Golgotha and give his precious blood during the time of the evening offering at 3 p.m. in the afternoon and not by accident? And if you are here today and you've never met the Savior, you cannot come on the basis of human merit. You cannot come on the basis of your good deeds or golden rule or church membership or anything else you can think of because it is only on the basis of Christ's perfect shed blood that you can be forgiven and approach a God who is absolutely holy. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah. Let's stand for prayer. Now, our Holy Father, we come to you today thanking you for this model prayer that you gave us in your word, a prayer not just to make us intelligent sinners, but to make us more like Jesus Christ. All scripture, you said, even this text, is given by your breath that we might be adequately equipped for every good work. So as we leave this place today, we ask that you would seal the lessons that you would want us individually to take away. I pray that our confession before you would be real and broken because a broken heart you do not despise. And may our prayers be for your glory and your honor, for you said your glory you will never share with another. I pray today for someone here, someone in Graniteville, Bluffton, someone live streaming in another part of the planet who is unsure of their salvation. Help them by the Spirit of God to confess Jesus as Lord. Help them today, Father, to see that Jesus completely finished all of the debts that we owed you there on the cross with the perfect shed blood that he gave on our behalf. Thank you for your promise that anyone who will believe what you said, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Father, help someone in childlike faith to simply say, Lord Jesus, save even me. Thank you that it is a trustworthy statement that deserves your full acceptance that you came, Lord Jesus, to save sinners. May we never be ashamed of him. May our hearts be not apathetic, but alive and passionate for the one who gave everything for us. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your name's sake, amen. Daniel pleaded the promises of God, and that's crucial to our prayer life, to know what God has promised and then to say to him, this is what you said in your word. To listen again to today's message, The Prayer of Daniel, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN12. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, 
Dr. Brogy will begin a look at Daniel's 70 weeks of prophecy. Join us then as we search the scriptures. Mm-hmm.